1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. If you hit an animal, but you do not find that animal, should you fill your tag? If you draw two premium elk tags in the same year, should you go on both of them? Should you hunt multiple states in a year, killing several bucks and several does, knowing good and well your family can only eat three deer in a year? It's these type of hard-hitting topics that make me absolutely love talking with Justin Spring. Justin Spring has been on the show before, but he is now the new executive director at the Pope and Young Club. And he's great at having these make-you-think conversations, challenging me as a sportsman, challenging me as an ethical bow hunter. He's great at having these conversations. And that's exactly what we talk about today. We talk about our footprint on wildlife. We talk about how to best manage our properties. We talk about these hard-hitting questions that there is no right or wrong answer to, but they're going to make you think and challenge you as a sportsman. We talk about how many does to shoot. We talk about when to shoot does. We talk about how to know if you need to kill more does or more bucks. We talk about what bucks to shoot. It's a phenomenal conversation. We end the conversation with some how-tos on hunting mountain bucks. Justin lives and is proud to be in Montana. So we talk about hunting those mountain whitetail bucks in Montana. It's a great episode, guys. I hope that it challenges you. I hope that it makes you think about things. Again, these questions, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. There's no line drawn in the sand on on yes or no. But we want to think about these things. We want to challenge ourselves. We want to continue to grow as conservationists. We want to continue to grow as sportsmen. And it's these types of conversations that's going to help us do so. So, guys, I hope you enjoy the episode. I hope you enjoy this podcast, as always, being brought to you by Scentlock. But, guys, stay right here and enjoy the conversation and challenge yourself to think about them for yourself. Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. Guys, if you have been around archery, much at all, then you've probably heard the name Lancaster. And for good reason, Lancaster Archery is well-known worldwide and they have an incredible reputation worldwide. Why? Because they're archery experts on all things archery, from bow hunting to 3D shooting, from recurves to compounds. If it's archery, they not only sell the products, but they know the products. Guys, Lancaster is your one-stop shop for all things bear archery, every compound, recurve, all the equipment, but outside of bear, they have everything you need from arrows and broadheads to, to bow building equipment, everything. Guys, Lancaster Archery is a name that you can absolutely trust. They put out some of the best information that you can find just about anywhere. So I would highly encourage you 
to not only shop at LancasterArchery.com because you can trust in the products you're buying because they know about the products that you're buying, but also I would highly encourage you to check out all of their resources, not only on their website, but on their YouTube channel because they are a wealth of knowledge on all things archery. So guys, check out Lancaster Archery. They're your one-stop shop, not only for all of the equipment that you could ever possibly need that's archery-related, but also all of the information that you would ever need that is archery-related. LancasterArchery.com. Go check them out. Espresso. Yeah, I already I already pounded my uh, my pot today, so. A whole pot, huh? Uh, well, you know, usually by noon. You know, I'll tell you what I I I started just uh, I just love espresso, man. Like I still have, I have a couple espressos a day and a couple cups a day of just regular coffee, but espresso's become my go-to. Really? Yeah, I, I I'm just a just a straight black drip coffee guy. You know, just yeah, nothing fancy. I mean, I don't know. They do have a. Oh, one of the local coffee companies has this uh, Mission Mountain Grog is what it's called. And it's in a lot of our gas stations and it's good stuff. It's about the only fancy coffee I like. Dude, I'll tell you what. Montana's got some dope coffee. Yeah. yeah. Real good coffee. Who are we now, are you are you in one of the areas? I was at uh, I was at Blacktail Mountain last year. And you're driving down the road and there's just these little cabin shacks. Just like literally a four by six little cabin and it just says coffee and you pull up and just tell them what kind of coffee you want. Yep. It's like a snow cone stand, but for coffee, it was legit. <clears throat> they, they just opened one of those in the little uh, town that I live in. So, you know, we're about 30 miles from Missoula, but now I only have to drive 10 minutes to go to a coffee shop, which is exactly one of those. So very my, cool. my coffee consumption could, could increase drastically. <laughs> Justin Spring, everybody, a coffee addict by day, big game bow hunter by night. Justin, last time you were on the show, man, you were at Boone and Crockett. You've since made a life change and a career change. Well, not really a career change, same field, but uh, made a made a job switch. Um, first off, give everybody kind of your background at Boone and Crockett and uh, where you're at now. So I uh, I went to work for Boone and Crockett in 2008 as the uh, assistant director of Big Game Records. Um, the when Jack Renault retired in 2015, I moved into the role as director of Big Game Records, and then recently, as of a couple weeks ago, um, I have come over as the executive director for Pope and Young Club. Um, always been a, a passionate hunter first and foremost, but you know. I'm not weapon specific. I love archery during archery season. I love shotguns during duck season. I, I'm a rifle hunter. I just love being out there and experiencing it and any, any weapon or whatever. So I'm not a specialist, but a very passionate conservationist. And, you know, any excuse to get out and harass critters a bit, I, I take it. So I don't know if you guys caught that, but Justin is now my boss. Um so I've got to listen to what he says now. Uh, used to, we got to just make fun of other people together, but now I actually got to listen to what he says. Um, so that's been fun. Um, but no, I really am. I truly am excited. Uh, as soon as I heard that Justin, Pre that Justin Spring applied to be our executive director, I, I got really excited because just having conversations with you, I'm, I'm just excited about uh, honestly learning from you uh, because not a lot of guys – you know, a lot of, and you, you can testify to this, even guys that work in conservation, 
you know, aren't really conservation minded. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to just learn from you and, and, and glean that knowledge because I love the way you think about things. I love the way you talk about things. Uh, you know, we were sitting around Pope and young last year and, and we just had such a good conversation, um, you know, about bow hunting and, and really the ethics behind bow hunting. And I was like, dude, I, we got to talk about this on a podcast. And so that was the last time you were on the show. This time we dove into a conversation about killing does, when to kill does, uh, and how to kill does. You know, a lot of guys are that whole, don't kill them after they're bred, um, kill them early season. Uh, and so I just kind of asking you your take on that, uh, from a conservation standpoint, from a, from an ethical standpoint, um, what is your take on killing does when to kill them? Obviously it's the peak of the rut right now. Um, but when is your preferred time to kill does? Well, I mean, this, this is kind of a longer story, you know, and, and this idea of, of not shooting does, um, it, it really goes back to the beginning of the conservation movement in North America, the idea of fair chase, Boone and Crockett, the original reason that they set up a record system. Um, at the time, our wildlife populations were at an all-time low. They could not sustain the harvest of females in, in the smaller bucks. And so the original conservation movement in the late 1800s was shifting the focus of hunters saying, no, we're not going to take those females. We're not going to take those young bucks. We're going to continue to hunt, but only go for the largest, most mature male specimens so that these, these populations can recover. Basically, it worked. Um, what we have now is, is robust wildlife populations across all of the country, you know, pretty much. I mean, there's certain areas and certain species that aren't as well off as others. But when it comes to white-tailed deer, man, you, you can shoot those to your heart's content. It's always appropriate, and it actually helps the herd. Um, you know, the, the, the number of white-tails we have across the landscape in many cases is too high. And so I personally don't think that there's ever a bad time to shoot shoot a doe as long as you're within the regulations of the state. Obviously, you don't poach something, but, you know, if the state says, hey, we'd like you to kill 10 does per person, you should be killing 10 does per person because that's a management objective. So, you know, if they give you a tag and they want that harvest to be made, you know, it's it's the conservation minded movement to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and. You know, that's kind of what we alluded to in our conversation the day of like, you know, these guys are like, well, I don't want them. I don't want to kill them before they're bred and or I don't want to kill them after they're bred. Well, so if your state, you know, we'll take we'll take Montana. If Montana has said we need you to kill seven does, then they're then they are counting for that dose fonts. Correct. I mean, they're counting that correct. this these seven does are no longer going to be bred. So whether you kill them before they're bred or after they're bred, you're still taking off that doe and her offspring and her future offspring. So it doesn't quite matter if you do it before or after, right? No, no it, it doesn't. And, you know, one thing to take into account is there is certain areas that maybe elk, for example, or deer under objective. In that case, maybe they issue a doe tag. That would be the time you try to take that older doe that's past your breeding prime. If we're talking about an area where we're trying to have a sustained harvest but increasing population, that's the time that we don't ever want to shoot that younger doe that has the highest breeding potential. Whether she's been bred or not, it's kind of irrelevant. What you're doing is taking out all of her future fawns. And so if the state's asking you to please, you know, take 
take these members of the of the population out to get us back to carrying capacity or where we think we need to be again it it doesn't it doesn't matter i mean if if you're trying to reduce populations the best thing you can do is take the youngest doe possible to you know have the greatest effect on population numbers so you're saying you do want to kill the youngest doe possible if you're in an area that the, the population's over over objective and you're trying to reduce your population, yes, from a from a management standpoint, that youngest doe that has the most breeding potential is is your target animal to try to reduce yeah. the number of deer on the landscape. So if somebody and let's take let's take the state out of the picture and let's look at, you know, piece of ground. Somebody's got, you know, eight hundred acres in Kansas and they're trying to manage that piece of property. You know, they want as close to a one buck to one doe ratio as they can get. Should they be targeting? Well, obviously this goes off of taking, you know, and looking at the property and saying, okay, well, there's right now there's four to one. But at what point does that switch to now let's not kill young does, let's kill, you know, old mature does. How does that person decide what age structure of does they should be shooting? Well, realistically, you know, each each individual property is going to be a little bit different. Um, whether or not it's a wintering ground, whether the deer stay there year round, that dictates what you can really, you know, what it can support. Um, you, it's density dependent. If if your resources, if if all the deer in the area come to your property in the winter and are trying to live off of what you have planted, you know, you're going to want a lower population so that they have more nutrients to to get them throughout the winter. If they just kind of pass through there, it's just a, a breeding area, you know, something during the rut when the bucks come in there and they bring does in there, um, you know, it probably doesn't matter a whole lot. It really, each individual property and each individual, you know, area is going to need, you know, certain harvest um, pressures. And your biologist should be able to tell you that it's, it's a little bit dangerous. Um, there's a lot of ideas out there on how to correctly manage a piece of property for whatever the end goal may be. And in many cases, sometimes those, those ideas may not mesh exactly with what the state's trying to do. Um, but again, there's not, there's not a one size fits all. Um, for example, I don't have that much ground in Montana. We've got 40 acres. We sit on here. We don't hold deer all winter. Um, you know, we kind of look at the overall population. We have never felt that our deer population was utilizing all the resources. They weren't overpopulated. We've never shot a doe on our property. Now, in other places in the state, that's completely not true. There's a ton of deer. I have no problem shooting a doe. But in my little 40 acres where I'm looking at, you know, we don't have a density problem. There's plenty of forage. There's plenty of everything for the deer. And so we actually want them to expand. So we're not shooting any does at all. Again, you know, that's that's my personal area. And the state's actually um, basically agreed with that is when we first moved out here, you could get a doe tag. They cut those doe tags significantly down. So that tells me in this area they want to increase their populations. This isn't a part of the state you want to shoot a doe. So given, a, you know, a land-to-land -land basis, if a landowner looks at their piece of ground, how do they know if they should shoot does or not? Like even if – you know, and we're saying, you know, my county issues six doe tags, but I look at my piece of ground. How do I know if I should personally take those off of my ground or not? You know, again, you're looking at the overall, overall herd health. Um, 
you know, do you, do you have a bad winter and then a bunch of the deer die? Do you have a ridiculous die off? Well, if that's the case, then you probably have too high of a population in that area. You've got to remember a whitetails home range is generally going to be significantly more than one person's property. And so yeah. just looking at just your property may, may never give you that answer. It, it should be more of a, a collaborative and, you know, QDMA has done a great job with that yeah. mentality of letting the older deer grow a little bit, you know, keeping, keeping your doe harvest in check, kind of working as a collaborative, covering the whole deer home range, you know, more of a herd idea rather than just a single property. Um, you know, in that case, that's what I go on is, you know, maybe you have a neighbor that kills everything that comes by and invites 150 people out there. Oh, well, maybe, maybe on your property, you shouldn't be shooting some does because that harvest is already being met. Maybe you have a neighbor that only shoots one buck every 20 years and doesn't touch anything else. Well, you, you probably do need to be knocking some of those does off, um, just for the overall, you know, region for the deer. Speaking of neighbors, I'm thankful for the neighbors I have. I do have good neighbors. Um, but my neighboring property, the South border of my property, literally turns into Oklahoma. So, I mean, I, I've shot deer several times and they run into Oklahoma to die. Well, their muzzleloader season opened this weekend. So I was sitting there with my bow in hand and I just hear shots going off and I'm like, great. <laughs> They're having a good time just 200 yards away. Um, but no, I do have good neighbors, but that was a little frustrating. My son goes, what was that? And I go, well, son, that was people taking advantage of an early muzzleloader season there, buddy. Um, but yeah, so now, what's your idea behind, you know, if you look at, because you're absolutely right, you can't look at your piece of ground and just say, these are my deer, this is how I'm going to manage it. So on a personal level, what do you think an individual can do to best influence their deer herds? And you're right. I mean, whether I own 800 acres or 40 acres, those deer are going onto other people's properties. They're crossing property boundaries. They're going elsewhere. It doesn't matter if I have 7,000 acres. There's deer that are leaving that place and going to other people's property. But what can the individual hunter say? You know what? Justin's probably right. I can I, I can never you know make the 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 deer herd like Lee and Tiffany Lakoski's. But here's some things I can put into practice. Here's best practices for individuals on a conservation effort for their, for their deer herds. You know, I mean, you've got to look at your entire area and your property as a puzzle piece in the overall ecology of the area. Um, mm -hmm. Montana, I know the big things out here that we worry about are invasive plants. Um, we, we do a lot of spraying on our property. We, we do some controlled burning and whatnot to try to, you know, well, while our property is not a wintering ground, I take great pride in knowing that there's a couple white-tailed does that come and fall on right next to my house. And so we've created a, a place where they feel like, okay, the habitat's correct. I can hide my fawn here. You know, it's, it's away from predators. And so with our 40 acres, no, I can't hold deer. I can't hold a herd of elk. If there's a bad winter, they're not going to come on to me and be able to survive. But I've taken that little piece and tried to make it as good as it can be, you know, make sure there's a water source that, that's available year round. Um, make sure that the invasive plants aren't, aren't crowding out the, the native um, preferred forage species. You know, Montana is very unique in that we actually do not allow food plots. And so, 
there, there's no way to put in an additional food source if you're going to hunt on the property. Well, when you got 40 acres, obviously, if you plant anything, it's going to be hunting over it. And so, you know, it's just making sure that the, that the native plants, the most palatable, the highest energy, everything that those deer need are what's thriving on your property. And you keep, you keep your management practices to where those deer can, you know, best utilize your property when, when they come by. You know, I think a lot of it comes down to for an individual hunter looking at their piece of ground, you have to stop thinking about it as this year or next year or even four years, five years. You have to think about this as a long-term investment. You know, like if I plant trees, those trees aren't going to benefit me. They might benefit my children, but they're definitely going to benefit my grandchildren. You know, and and the deer that they're hunting. If I'm putting in a bunch of fruit trees or a bunch of, you know, white oaks or whatever, you name it, I'm not going to see the benefit of that this year. I'm not even going to see the benefit of that in 10 years. But my grandkids are going to be in deer heaven when they're hunting 100, you know, the 100 white oaks that I planted or whatever in 2023. Um, and so I think that so many hunters, they try to look at, well, man, I want to kill a giant next year. What can I do to make that better? Well, it's, it's not going to happen in a year. It's not going to happen in five years. You've got to look at that piece of ground as a long-term investment. Also, I think that best best conservation efforts to grow a bigger herd is to quit worrying about antler size. You know, I have a I have a tank of a buck here in Kansas. He's probably eight years old. And I sent a picture of him to a guy, and he says, dude, you can't shoot that deer. And I'm like, why not? And he said, look how big his rack is. He's like 120 inches. And I'm like, yeah, but that's an eight-year-old deer that weighs 275 pounds. Like that is the deer I need to kill off this property. And so when you kill big, mature deer that have reached their full growth potential and you hunt those deer rather than just the ones with the biggest antlers. Now, again, looking long-term in five, 10 years, those deer will be the ones with the biggest antlers. But if I pass up the three and a half, you know, 140 to shoot the, the eight and a half, 120, it's going to be better for my property. And so many guys miss that, I think. Yeah. No, the, the age thing should be your number one criteria. And, you know, Boone and Crockett had a ranch um, that was part of the block management um, program, which is a oh, hunter access program for public hunters. You sign in, you get to go on the ranch. And what we found was we'd have older, mature mule deer bucks, maybe a three point, maybe a fork by three, just not that attractive four point buck that they were letting go to shoot those younger four points because in their mind, Oh, I got to shoot a four point mule deer. Um, you know, you, when looking for a deer to take hundred percent, don't just look at the score look for that age. I mean, that age should be the number one thing, that big old, you know, barrel chested buck that, you know, maybe he's only a spike, you know, just this horrible old animal. Yeah. That's in terms of increasing herd that, that animal's bred, it can be taken out of the population with zero effect overall. The breeding still happening. He's probably past his breeding prime. Um, you know, yeah, the age, age is number one. Now, again, the, the idea behind big antlers and, and, and score and all that stuff, which, you know, we all get very excited about. I mean, antlers are a secondary sexual characteristic, meaning once the deer's survival is assured, then they can throw nutrients and additional resources to growing antlers to impress the ladies, for lack of a better term, in fighting. Um, you keep your deer population to a level where there's ample resources, they're not stressed, 
the byproduct of that is going to be those giant antlers once that yeah. year is, you know, beyond maturity. And so, you know, yeah, you don't shoot, you don't shoot the buck that's had two great years and is showing great potential. And, you know, it's maybe the biggest scoring deer you have, but if it's a three and a half or four and a half year old, he's not to his prime. You know, that's, you got to let that get up to that higher age class, that six, seven, that eight, maybe, you know, before, before you take it out to see any of your efforts actually come to fruition. So what you want to have happen is, you know, you're, you're shooting those older bucks beyond their prime. They may be going down. Okay. Maybe the number's not quite as high as it was in its prime, but you've got a healthy herd where the resources are going into, you know, maintaining the herd. That, that was the idea. That's the idea of records. That's why we keep records is to see, you know, overall, how is the, is the habitat doing? If this area used to put out, you know, 10 Pope and Young entries every decade, and all of a sudden it's out putting out 20 or 30, something happened there, right? Did, you know, was, was there some type of man, land management change? You know, what, what did that do? Same things in reverse. Oh, this area used to put out 30 Pope and Young entries every 10 years. Now we're only seeing one every five years. Okay. What changed there? Did we, did we increase harvest? Did we shift that did we shift that season to when the deer are more vulnerable hunting them in the rut? You know, did we see a great increase in the over the counter tag purchases for the archery season? I mean, that that's all that stuff comes into play and, you know, shooting to get back to the original point though, shooting that older age class animal, generally speaking is what you want to be doing. Assuming you want your herd herd size to increase. Guys, I'm a big believer in prioritizing your feet. Your feet should always be a priority and you should always be considering what's on your feet. If you're in the mountains and you've got blisters and hot spots, you are not going to go as far. You're not going to make it to that next ridge. You're not going to stay on the mountain as long. Ultimately, you're not going to be as successful. If you're sitting in a whitetail stand and your feet are freezing, you're going to get more jittery. You're not going to be as still. You're not going to be as quiet. You're not going to stay as long. Ultimately, you're not going to be able to kill that big buck in the dead of winter. If you're chasing antelope, you've got to be able to be quick and quiet and fast and have comfortable feet. Guys, no matter what you're chasing, no matter the pursuit, no matter the game, your feet should be a priority. I have fallen in love with Schnee boots. I didn't even know how normal hot spots and blisters were in my life until I got a good pair of boots because I was probably a lot like you. I would run to a, a Cabela's Bass Pro. And I would buy a pair of $100 boots thinking that I was saving money. But those boots break down faster, and I got to keep buying boots. So, guys, don't let a pair of $400 boots keep you from buying good boots because in the long run, those $100 boots, they add up. Whereas if you spend good money on a good pair of Italian-made, handcrafted boot, they're going to last you for 10, 15 years. They're going to be way more comfortable. You're going to be more successful. Your feet will be more comfortable. You will thank me later. So, guys, go check out schnees.com for all of your boots. That's S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com. The best boots on planet Earth, Schnee boots. Go check them out. Thank me later. But, guys, start prioritizing your feet and get yourself a good pair of boots. Yeah, it, and not only herd size to increase, but herd health to increase. You, you know, you said it has zero effect on the herd. It has zero negative effect on the herd. It has all the benefits because, you know, if you've got a big eight and a half year old bully buck, well, then it can't let it, your two and a half year old bucks don't breed. They don't eat. They don't, you know, because that that big old bully buck is pushing them around um, and those bucks can't grow because this this, you know, eight and a half year old deer that's already 
past his prime is taking up food. He's taking up bedding. Um, so your, your younger deer that have potential can't grow that in that stress-free environment. Like Justin talked about because those older deer, um, now don't get either of us wrong. We both care about big animals. We like hunting big animals. <laughs> we both, we both work for Pope and young. Um, however, that right there in and of itself, Justin, is one of the biggest misconceptions about Pope and Young is that they only care about the big animals. They're only record book driven. Though that That's a good old boys club, and you got to kill giants to belong to that club. Absolutely not. The minimum entry for a whitetail, typical whitetail, is 125 inches. That's not giant, guys. If you've hunted any time at all, you've probably at least seen a 125. I don't even care where you're from. I, I grew up born and raised in Arkansas where deer are no bigger than a chocolate lab. And I, and I had hunted 125 inch whitetails. You've probably seen them. You've probably hunted them. You've probably shot them. But the misconception is that Pope and Young only cares about the giants. The only reason the, the, the reason the record book was started, not the only reason is to be able to take data to different state organizations and different state legislators and show that archery was a legitimate means of harvesting big game animals. And so that 125 mark, and you know, we could dive into all the other species and their minimums, but we won't. But that 125 mark basically just showed that that was a mature whitetail, um, that, that that was a bigger, mature whitetail that had been taken with archery equipment. So guys, why, yes, Pope and Young, we do care about new world records. We do care about big, giant, beautiful antlers like we all do. Pope and Young is a conservation organization that cares about helping increase Deer populations, elk populations, mule deer populations, polar bear, muskox, you name it. And the reason that record book exists is so that we have data to be able to look back on and see if what we're doing is working or if what we're doing is hindering the population of deer in your, in your state, in your county. Um, so don't get us wrong. We do care about big animals, but killing the deer with the biggest antlers doesn't necessarily always mean that you're doing what's best for your ground. Yeah. You know, I mean, the other thing on that too, Dylan, you know, the records, um, people are, you know, well, why I've already got a 155 that I took with my bow that I put in Pope and Young. Why would I put in this 140? Why would I put in this 125? At the end of the day, it's a data set. Okay. And yeah. so as we have different technologies, different season structures, different things, you, we become more efficient as archers. Well, what's the effect on that? Are, are we killing more of these deer? Are we killing less of these deer? Are they, are they not getting as old? I mean, what, what is the effect? And so every single animal that qualifies either for Pope and Young, Boone and Crockett, you know, any of the organizations that, that have a record book, you know, none of them are exclusive. You know, BNC's mission was a particular mission. Pope and Young's is to promote archery and ensure, you know, that, that archery hunting goes forward. Part of that is the conservation mission. The biggest reason I came over to Pope and Young is, is, you know, I'm really passionate about making sure the opportunity and the animals and the wild places are there into the future so archery hunting can continue. That's what my fire is. And so, you know, is a conservation thing. If you don't care about your name in the book, I don't care if my name's next to a, a big animal. I mean, is it kind of cool? Sure. But it, it, in the long run, that's your piece for conservation is to try to you put those deer in. And even if it is smaller than your biggest one, that's not the point. If the deer in this county used to be 155 and now they're 135, well, there's a conservation issue there that needs to be looked into. And so yeah. that's why every single qualifying animal, it's a data point. You know, you don't yeah. want to put your name in the book. That's fine. You know, it, it's, 
it's it was never supposed to be about just purely recognizing a hunter's you know prowess it was supposed to be hey this is an effective methodology this this works you know th- these are the caliber of animals that you can take with archery this is a worthwhile tool to have in your toolbox as a manager um you know we'll talk about this more in the future but if you look at the western states now 20 30 years to draw an elk tag to draw a sheep tag if you ever draw it in your life we're too successful the only way that you could increase opportunity a lot of these species we can't put more sheep out there there's only so much sheep habitat we can't put more elk in a unit there's only so much water to maintain them we've got to limit our success and the best way in my mind to limit success is archery hunting not that it's not a successful tactic but you've got a lot smaller footprint when you're out there with your bow you're not shooting 800 yards you're not shooting a thousand yards you've got to get close you still get that experience you still get to hunt you know you get to see the giant bulls it's just if you find a big one, it's not a guarantee that you're going to be able to get a shot at it, which in some cases with some of the, the newer emerging technologies, you could argue if you can see it, you can kill it. And I, and I just don't think that's sustainable. So I think archery, even more so into the future, will be a very important tool for the state management to use because they can sell these tags. The hunter gets the opportunity, but your harvest success is going to be lower, therefore allowing more people to go afield. I heard an interesting, <laughs> interesting is, a, <laughs> is the only word I can think of to use. I heard an interesting idea. This guy said, you know, I think, especially in those kind of areas, like you're talking about, he said, I think you should never be able to get a rifle tag until you've shot one with a bow. Once you've punched an archery tag, then you're eligible to get even drawn for that rifle tag. And he said, if we want to take it a step further, you know, in areas that that it's it's way the success rate's way too high. You don't you can't draw a compound tag until you've punched a traditional tag, and then you can't draw that that rifle tag until you've drawn until you've shot that compound, until you've punched a tag with your compound. And I'm like, you know, there's it's it's kind of a crazy thought, but there are pieces of ground. You know, there are you know those one-off draw areas. Uh, I can think of one. Um, back from where I'm from and you could never hunt them with a rifle until you've, you know, successfully harvested on the archery equipment. Um, it's interesting to think about. Is there any merit to that? You think? Uh, I'm not going to tell you who said it. Certainly. I'm not going to tell you who said it because you you and I and the crowd would know them, but it was interesting conversation. you, You and I could say that, as hunting partners, right? For us, we have the ability, we have the mobility, we have everything that we need at our disposal. We could limit ourselves and say, hey, I'm not going to do this until I can do it with a bow. Mandating that, you've also got to look at the the recruitment fact. You've got young kids. I've got an eight-year-old son. I would never want... He... We've got robust wildlife populations. If he wants to, you know, at 10 years old in Montana, when he can be a mentored youth, if he's ready and he wants to shoot a forked horn with a rifle, I'm never going to cut that down. I never would want to take that away from him. Once he gets into college, maybe once he's experiences it, he knows he loves hunting. It almost gets too easy for him to kill a deer with his rifle. Then we can talk about, well, hey, do we want to limit ourselves and try to do archery only? Do, do we want to make it harder? Do we want to go you know, 20 yards and in with traditional gear. Um, you know, I, I always tell the story, you know, 
I was fortunate enough to draw three moose tags. And so I've got all three species of moose. And if there's an animal out there that's very killable with a bow, it's a moose. So there's like they were designed to be hunted with a bow because you get in close. They're very vocal. It's an awesome hunt. Well, two of the units I went on was in any weapon and I took a rifle, you know, and my thought there was, well, there's no rule that says I have to shoot that moose at rifle range. I can get within bow range. And, and you probably shot him shot in bow range, didn't count. you? All three of them. <laughs> all, all, three, all three That's of them were well within bow range. But, you know, again, like I would never mandate that somebody had to use a bow. I would never mandate any of that because each person sees a little bit different, you know, sees a little bit different outcome that they're looking for in hunting. Um, my wife absolutely adores bird watching. And so, you know, she's just as happy if we're out on a hike and she sees some random bird, she can check off her list that she hasn't yet. Now, it's not that she's not a hardcore hunter, not that she doesn't kill great animals, a lot of stuff better than mine. But, you know, you don't ever want to take away somebody's potential drive to hunt. And when you start saying, oh, well, you have to do this first, or you have to do this first. Yeah, I, on those grounds, I wouldn't say it has merit, but that that being said you know i i could argue that it's got kind of easy for us to kill deer in montana we could hunt bigger bucks or we could limit our range you know that that's what as a hunter you need to be doing but i don't i don't want i don't want pope and young or anybody to ever say well this is what you have to do to be a good hunter right. that, that's just not right yeah no i mean and there's always been that kind of you know two sides to one coin um mm -hmm. you know you hear people say my son's got to start with a bow. My son's got to do it the hard way before he gets to do it the easy way. And I'm on your side. I'm like, you know, if my son wants to go out and shoot deer, I'm not going to tell him, well, you got to be able to draw 45 pounds before you can do that, bud. You know, I'm not going to take off two years of his hunting life because I'm trying to do that. But also, you know, and there are people who are wired differently. Um, you know, there are people who they're going to hunt for two seasons and not get within bow range. So this is stupid. I'm not doing this anymore. And I want my son to experience a harvest. I want him to experience taking the life of something. I want him to know what it's like to have killed something, to have this died because of you. I, I want him to know that. Um, and so with a rifle, that's going to give us the best opportunity. So as soon as he's ready, we're going out. Uh, now, again, there's a lot of people that think differently. There's a lot of people on the flip side of that coin. However, I'm in your camp on that. Um, one no. thing I, I I wanted to ask you about. Oh, go ahead. Did you want to say something about that? No, I was I was going to say on, on your thing, I think that's very important when we're discussing youth seasons. And, you know, we both have younger kids. And that's the point of our lives is we're trying to get them into it and do it right. I think that acknowledgement that they took a life and a recognition that, that that's yeah. what's at stake that is the most important thing that you as a parent need to be watching for. Um, you look at a lot of these youth hunters and you, they tell their stories and sure, six year old or seven year old in some States can hundred percent legally kill an animal. But when they tell the story, there is no comprehension of what their actions actually entailed. Um, yeah. You know, I, I had a great weekend this weekend with my wife and son, you know, we were floating a river. I had a swan tag, you know, my son was there as we were cleaning the swan and he's like, man, I, I feel bad for the swan. Like, like what, what did the swan do to deserve this? And I was like, well, buddy didn't do anything to deserve this, but this is how we survive. 
and so he's to me he's starting to get that idea that like we're yeah. taking a life it's not just wanton killing like if we're gonna do this we respect it we utilize it and so i right. feel he's getting to the point where he's almost ready so what i'm doing is i found a couple states that allow him to duck hunt at eight years old and so it's not a big game animal i mean not that a duck's life is any less important than a deer but it's a it's a smaller incremental introduction to this and I think, yeah. you know, anytime I get a chance to talk about this, if you're going to get your kids involved, yes, there's statistics that say, oh, the earlier you get them, the better. Yeah, but we need them to understand that we are taking something's life. Yes, we're utilizing it. Yes, we're proud of it. Yes, we, 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 we take great pride in our ability to put something on the table or on the wall or whatever it may be. But if, you know, I feel if you let kids just start shooting stuff as soon as they can because they can and they don't get that education – Man, that, right. that's going to hurt hurt the entire industry in the long run. And that's what I heard this guy, and he was talking about uh, wounding an animal. He said, yeah, I hit it a little far back. Um, it, it's not dead. And somebody else said, uh, "Would you go? How, how long did you look for it? You know, how far did you trail it? And he said, I didn't. You know, it was just a doe. Um, and I, you know, I just knew the hit was too far back. And I thought to myself, the words came out of your mouth just now just a doe why yeah. is that doe's life any less valuable than a 220 bucks life it's it's not mm -mm. but you obviously don't understand what you're doing like you obviously don't understand as a sportsman and as a conservationist what you're doing you're out there just to kill stuff you're out there yeah. just to put something on the wall and that's sick and i think that is due to a generation that was not taught the implications of what you're doing and taking a life. Yeah. And so I, I just want to make dang sure that I'm teaching my son as we go. What are we doing here? And you know, like when we see a bird and he's like, dad, shoot it. I'm like, no, we're not going to shoot the bird. And he's like, why not? And I'm like, cause we're not here to bird hunt. We're not going to eat that bird. It's not bird season. Uh, you know, here's why here's the, here's the 10 reasons why. Now, if you want to come back out during season, Let's absolutely shoot some birds, dude, and we'll cook them up and eat them. However, I'm not going to eat that crow that's landing in the field, you know, while we're deer hunting. I'm not. Um, and so teaching him these these sort of things, you know, about why we're doing what we do. Like, yeah, dad loves this. Dad loves killing. And, yeah, we want to kill a big, giant deer. But, dude, it's so much more than that. Right. And that's why I wanted to ask you that the value of that life and the value of that tag in your pocket. You have a, a relationship with Steve Ranella. Um, and it, I was watching an episode of him one time, and he did something really interesting. So I want to have your take on this. He shot, I think it was an elk, and he never found it. But based off the hit, based off the blood, he thought that elk was probably dead. And so he notched his tag. He said, I've, I've taken, I'm not going to find that elk. Does he live? Maybe, possibly but I think he's probably dead. So I'm going to notch my tag. I highly respected him for that. Do you think that's a good practice? And not, not whether we just, whether we decide it's a good practice or not, I'm not bashing Steve Rennell in any way because that was highly, highly respectable. What he did. Would I have done it? No, I would have kept hunting, but um, that was highly respectable. I've found myself in a similar situation where, you know, 
I tried to do it. And honestly, I saw another bigger buck later on and I, I couldn't, I couldn't hold off. And I, my hat's off to Steve. I, you know, yeah, absolutely. I feel like if I, it, it also really depends on, and as bad as this sounds, if I were to wound a sheep and the desire that people have to hunt sheep, I would 100% quit. Um, I obviously I'd do everything I could to try to find that sheep, but you know, I, I had a, I guess it's happened to me a few times of where, you know, I, I hit a bull in the shoulder archery hunting in Utah. Um, we followed him for three days. I saw him running cows. He was a hundred percent fine. You know, my buddies were having the conversation with me like, man, why don't we go after a different bull? We've got him pretty spooked. And I'm like, no, nope, no, nah, I, I messed up. I, I didn't make a good shot. I shoulder stuck him. Yeah. I got the arrow back. Everything's telling me that bull's fine, but that's my bull. Now, if we can kill him, heck yeah. But if not, you know, I'm not going to shoot another one. Well, the fire came yeah. in and ran us out of there. So <clears throat> I'd like to think if I was given the opportunity at another bull, I wouldn't have taken it. But, you know, as hunters, we have to be honest with ourselves. You know, you try your best and we're not always perfect. And every, you know, when you do shoot that second deer, I felt guilty about it and still do. You know, you, you're always learning. So I think what Steven did in that particular case, and, you know, don't, you said I have a relationship with him. I've met him a few times. It's not like we're best friends or anything, but yeah, I, I've known him and I've you know been around a couple of the hunts he's been on and he is a very, you know, respectable, very upstanding guy. Um, yeah. All those meat eater guys I, I've been very impressed with, but I think, I think in that case, uh, and I think I've seen the episode, I, you know, yeah, there, there are certain tags there are certain hunts that it's pretty selfish to potentially kill two animals, even if it may be legal because you lost one to, to kill a second one, you know, as, as a hunter, I mean, hats off to him. And I, I hope if I was in that situation, I could have that same self-restraint. Well, and it's going back to, you know, you mentioned sheep is a sheep life any more valuable than a deer. No, that's not what I, I can say. That's not what you meant. However, if I'm whitetail hunting here in Kansas and I wound a buck, dude, the, 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 there's such a, there's so many deer, you know what I mean? You're not taking too much from the land. Whereas if you go up in the sheep, you know, in certain areas where sheep tags are, you know, there's 10 tags a year or whatever, and you take two, you've taken too much. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you have and, to know. That's, have to I guess know that's that. what I was. Yeah. That's what I was trying to get at is in an area that is very opportunity limited it is quite selfish to potentially take two animals. If you're one of the names yeah. that's pulled and you make a mistake, even if it's legal, you probably shouldn't potentially take a second one because that means somebody's going to wait another how many years to get that opportunity. You had it, you didn't make good on it. You know, you, you live and learn from it, but it's not necessarily, not necessarily appropriate to take a second. And I, and you'll hear me talk about this. I think as hunters, we need to, be cognizant of how big our footprint is. Um, how much of an effect am I having on populations? How much of an effect am I having on animals? You know, there's there's some people out there that that have really said, is it appropriate to kill more than an elk or two a year if that's your thing? Well, okay, you can draw a bunch of tags in a bunch of Western states. You could hunt, you know, if, if you've got the time, you, you could hunt numerous states and kill numerous bulls. You know, at... It really makes me question it should, should I draw two or three tags? Is that, is that appropriate to kill two or three bulls? Um, or am I taking more than my fair share? Am I having a bigger footprint than, 
that I'm really, you know, entitled to as just an average citizen of the United States able to partake in, you know, consumptive uses of our wildlife. I don't know that one. I'm still, I, I'm still wondering, uh, what if I do draw two premier elk tags? On the one hand, I waited 15, 20 years to draw them. If they both come in the same year, I, you, common sense is going to be like, well, I'm going to hunt them both. But at the same time, do I really need to shoot two elk in one year? Or am I being a little bit selfish? And again, I, you know, I personally think that comes down to, like you said, if it's a premier elk tag, if it's a, you know, a once in a lifetime tag and you happen to get drawn twice in a year, absolutely go hunt them. However, I, I do kind of have issues with people who whitetail hunt seven states and they're all over the counter tags. You could do it anytime you wanted, but yet you kill, you know, nine bucks and 17 does in a year where you have your family of fours only, only needs three deer a year to live. Now that person says, I'm not wasting the meat. I'm donating it. Okay. But why not teach somebody else how to hunt so they can get their own meat rather than having to donate them the meat? You know, there's, there's a big difference in saying, Hey buddy, I want to donate you a hundred pounds of deer meat and saying, Hey, I would like to take you hunting this year so you can kill a deer and get a hundred pounds of deer meat. You know what I mean? Well, you know, no, for sure. And I guess my thought on those, those people that are, have the time and the, the finances to hunt numerous states, if they have a deer lease in every one of those states, that's six deer leases that at any given day is not being hunted if it's just them that other people could be having an opportunity. And so that's what I mean about your footprint. Um, you know, maybe, maybe be a little cognizant. Sure. You can afford six deer leases, but you know, is somebody else not able to hunt because you're driving the price up? Are you being a little selfish? Now? Yes, you earned it. It's I'm not, I'm not saying anything or anything against people that, that have been, you know, successful in their, in their work or whatever it may be. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of people and a lot of people want to hunt and our wildlife's future is contingent upon hunting, staying relevant and allowed. Should, should we be hunting as many places as we can? I don't know. And I think this is probably a topic we can come back to because I don't know exactly where I do sit on it. I'm guilty of it. I've drawn, yeah, I've killed two or three deer in a year. I've, I've traveled to different States. I, I play the point game. I've done all that. Um, was I selfish or was I entitled to that? And I don't know where I sit on it, but you know, something to think about. This is why I love conversations with Justin Spring. And this is exactly what I was saying about being excited about you coming on board with Pope and Young. Because you say things and you have these hard to have conversations. Um, you know, a lot of guys don't want to think about these things. A lot of guys don't want to ever consider these things. But it makes you think and and it makes you grow as a sportsman. And it makes you grow as an outdoorsman when you consider these things. Um, now, there's a lot to be said about, well, Oklahoma needs X amount of deer killed. And they've allocated the, you know, they have non-resident tags and they need X amount of deer killed by non-residents. So I'm going down there and I'm helping with their conservation efforts. And then I'm donating the meat. And, you know, Oklahoma's winning because they need these deer killed. Uh, the food bank is winning because they're getting all this meat. I'm winning because I get to kill another deer. You know, there's that too. I mean. I'm not taking more than the land needs to to be taken off of. There's a reason Oklahoma and Missouri and Arkansas, there's a reason they're selling those tags because they need those animals killed. So I'm not necessarily taking more than my fair share, but I think there's more value in saying, you know, I want to teach this guy from Oklahoma how to hunt. 
That way he's taking his share every year. Um, rather, you know what I mean? Rather than me just killing it and then donating the meat. Well, I mean, there, there's something to be said too of, of respecting wildlife and respecting wild places and owning that, that meal. I mean, my wife and I love to cook. We, we love to hear somebody say, Oh, I don't eat wild game. And then, it's you know, the best cook them ever. something that we took, that we took from field to table and some fancy French preparation or some horrible idea that I got from watching the cooking channel. Like, I bet I could do that with a deer. Um, yeah, we get, we get pride in that, but, but giving somebody the ability to go to the field and, and put food on the table and, and have ownership in that and know the start to finish process. I, I, I think it's invaluable. And, you know, if you can get more people exposed, I mean, again, how big is your footprint? You have a great deer lease. As soon as you kill your target buck, maybe think about inviting some other people out there, you know, and if one of them kills another great buck, don't be mad. I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying about be cognizant of your footprint. Make sure that your, your, your hunting is not preventing other people from having the opportunity, I guess, is what I always try to do. When I had this one guy, he said, dude, hunting Kansas sucks. Cause you've got these management deer that you need to kill, but you only get one tag. So if I kill a management deer, I can't kill a trophy deer. And I thought, well, that's the perfect opportunity to take somebody with you to say, hey, I need these deer killed. You know, we're going to see four management bucks this week. So let's go out there and let's get you one of them. Um, it's a perfect opportunity. You've tagged that on your giant. Take people out to your ground, your coveted ground that you won't tell anybody where it's at. Take a couple guys out there and let them shoot management bucks. It's helping your property. It's helping your ground. You're introducing somebody. You're giving somebody else opportunity. It's a win for everybody. So, you know, I think there's there's benefit in that too. Not to look at, well, man, I can only kill one, but I need to kill these three. Take somebody with you. Yeah. Now, uh, on to lighter conversation, if you will. We've hit, we've hit a lot of, of heavy, hard topics. It is, uh, when when do you say, if you had to pick on a calendar, when is the rut in Montana for whitetails? I cannot divulge that information in a public setting. No, um, it's, <laughs> I would say right now we're, we're, we're starting to see the whitetail are a little bit before um, Montana's the mule deer rut is always later November. We can hunt them through the weekend after Thanksgiving. That last week of season is pretty much bomber mule deer hunt, rut. You will see the whitetails running that late, but you know, similar to a lot of the country, um, especially the Northern latitudes, you know, we are, right now is is pretty darn good um you know a lot of people discuss oh the rut didn't happen oh the rut spread out oh the rut's late the rut's early you know you got to remember the further north you go the narrower window these animals have to be bred and then drop a fawn the corresponding spring if it's not dropped at the right time that fawn survival goes to almost nothing and so we see it a lot in the elk right out here. And it, it, you know, white tails are a little bit more adaptable. They're not as tight as, say, the mule deer or the elk. But, you know, the breeding, just because you're not seeing rutting activity doesn't mean the rut's not happening. Um, it could be going on at night. It can be, you know, there's a lot of things that can come to play. And so when you look at the rut predictions on, you know, well, the rut is going to be peak at this time. Yes, that's when the majority of the breeding has to happen so that the majority of the fawns hit the ground so many days after, you know, whatever the gestation period is for that particular location. And so, you know, 
right now we're starting to get there. We're not quite to peak breeding, but we're in definitely in the pre-rut. I, I am yeah. a big fan of, of hunting pre-rut and not rut, you know, the lockdown, all that stuff. Um, it holds true for a lot of animals. You want to be out there when they're trying to assert dominance. So yeah, right, right now is a good time for whitetails, but they will show rut activity all the way through November here. You know, and, and you're right. There is that, that time. And I, I looked back today. I was interested to know I, I'm going on a hunt. Um, just so you know, I'm taking off next Monday and Tuesday. Um, I'm going on, a, <laughs> I'm going on a hunt next Monday and Tuesday at like, I'm talking prime ground. I mean, some of the best whitetail ground in my area ever. And I, I started thinking, I'm like, I wonder if that falls. And so I started looking back at all my pictures of past deer. The last five bucks I've killed was in the week of November 11th through the 18th. The last five deer. Um, and that's not because that's the only time I went hunting. Um, that's not, you know, well, that's the week you go hunting every year. No, I hunt a lot. The last five whitetails I've killed all fell in the week of November 11th through the 18th. There's something to be said about that. There's something that I can look at and historically know, okay, well, those are firing off that week because, you know, that's the two-week window. That falls in the two-week window or the week window or, you know, 17 days, whatever it might be, where they have to be bred for the highest survival rate for their fawns. Um, and so there is that. Um, and so I, I have to take a step back. I have said a lot of times my single favorite day to hunt is November 7th. I've said that many times. Um, but after looking at that today, I'm like, well, it's no longer November 7th. It's got to fall in that week of November 11th to the 18th because I've killed five deer in a row and five, five years, five deer in that week. Um, I'm sorry, four deer. Last year, I killed two deer in that same week, and one in Kansas, one in Oklahoma. Um, so, Justin, mountain bucks. You know, you're in Montana. I don't get a lot of of mountain whitetail hunters. What's your rut tips for hunting deer in western state? Whitetail deer in western states during the rut. So you got to remember that we do have ag. We do have your classic whitetail. We do have, you know, the famous milk river. Those, those are 100% your average whitetail. Um, you know, you hunt them like you would. You, you, it, it's an amazing experience. What we do have in Idaho has it, you know, some of these Western states, these bucks live up in, you know, what you'd think of as mule deer country, 5,000, 6,000 foot elevation. Um, if you've ever hunted blacktail deer or you've ever hunted, you know, mule deer in the West where it's a lot of walking, a lot of glassing, you know, trying to break apart a brush patch, seeing if you can pick out an antler, we do have whitetail hunting. It's like that. Now, that being said, the forage that they have available to them up higher in these, you know, higher elevations is not near what you have in the bottomland. So no, you're not going to kill a 200 inch freaking mountain buck. Um, it, it just the groceries aren't there. That being said, it is a very unique whitetail. I mean, I've got a picture of a, you know, a, it was a five by five whitetail. It was a mature deer, probably didn't weigh more than 130 pounds. I have the entire thing in a backpack and I'm coming down a scree slope, you know, through knee deep snow, pretty awesome experience. But, um, you know, up there, they're migratory. And so if I'm hunting mountain bucks, I know certain drainages that, at a certain time, those bucks will be coming down through there, following the does down as the snow comes in. It, 
that that's the tip find find that find that shoot that like okay this entire drainage it's all going to get snowed out and no there'll be no available forage for deer they're all going to come right down through this particular down this ridge that's you know that's how i like to hunt that and it's not as much rut activity if they see a doe great but they're they're migrating down out of the mountains like a mule deer would or you know another mountain species which you know for a lot of whitetail hunters is a whole different thing and it's it's a cool experience like i said they're not big deer i mean when you you know we see both styles i mean if i shoot a mountain buck i can 100 percent throw it on my shoulders and pack it out whole without any problem the other ones, the ones that are down lower, it's almost a different body style. They're they're long. You know, I call them a racehorse variety because they're all stretched out, and I can't put those on my shoulders. They're too big, and so it's it's kind of a little unique oddity hunt that a lot of folks don't realize is there, and it's frustrating. I mean, it's you spend a lot of time walking through country that you think should be really good until you find those those peak ridges that all the whitetail from this particular area are coming down in your little honey hole you spend a bunch of time out there not seeing a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> Can non-residents hunt whitetails in Montana? Oh, it used to be you could draw a deer tag. My dad would always put in as a non-resident and he pulled pretty much every year, every other year. Um, Montana's got real popular. There's some legislative actions happening where, you know, particular outfitters and, and whatnot are trying to get more bonus points for clients versus just your average non-resident hunter it is getting difficult to pull the general tag. Once you do pull a Montana general deer tag, though, as a non-resident, you can pretty much hunt the entire state for whitetail. Mule deer is a little more limited. You have to pick a unit, especially on the west side. Um, there's a few There's a few areas that have stipulations that you can't hunt whitetail, but they're very limited. The majority of the state, if you have a general deer tag, you can hunt whitetails, east side to west side, any any unit you're in for the most part. So that combination, that basically means you can you can use that tag for a whitetail or a mule deer. Is that how that works? So the combination refers to the fact is if you draw there's a there's a big game combo which would be a deer and an elk tag, or there's a deer combo. What that refers to is the fact you also get a fishing license, an upland bird license. They give you a whole slew of different licenses when you draw the deer combination, and so it's not you know. A deer tag, each unit has different regulations on muleys and whitetails. Generally speaking, your general deer tag in most all units is valid on a whitetail buck. Very cool. Well, dude, I'm I'm putting in. I'm coming to Montana 2024. <laughs> uh, you better be ready to guide me. I know that. You you better have a deer I'll, I'll nailed down. I'll send you to where they live. You just got to get there and then get out. That's the hard part. Dodge the grizzly bears. That's what I tell everybody. You know, in Montana, there's a bear behind every tree. And if you get far enough east that you're out of trees and there's a rattlesnake behind every rock, you don't want to come here. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) Guys, if you run any kind of supplement for your deer, which you absolutely should, there are things that deer need. And I have found that when I run supplements for my deer, um, it keeps them on my property so they don't go wandering off onto other properties looking for that thing that they're needing. And so I have just dove fully into running minerals and protein for my deer all year long. Buck bourbon does supplements and attractants really, really well. Whether you're looking for a long range attractant like the 110 proof, um, or whether you're looking for a feed that you can run all year long in a feeder or, um, even just on the ground in their barrel proof, buck bourbon has what you need. 
I can tell you story after story of going onto a new 500 acre piece, dumping out some long range attractant and deer just coming into it. Guys, it will make a difference in the way that you see your deer come in. So guys, I would highly encourage you to check out Buck Bourbon. You can use code HUNTING101 in all caps to get 15% off. But I would just encourage you, no matter what, to start running some sort of supplement for your deer. It'll have a happier, healthy herd. You'll keep them on your property more, and you can better manage those deer. Guys, go check out Buck Bourbon. Guys, I just want to take a minute um, to encourage you. If you're a bow hunter, which if you're listening to Bear Archery's podcast, you're probably a bow hunter. If you're a bow hunter, you absolutely belong to Pope and Young. Uh, Pope and Young is the voice of each and every bow hunter. We stand for bow hunters. You don't have to have an animal in the books to be a member of Pope and Young. And you don't have to be a member to put animals in the book. The two do not coincide. However, we encourage both. We encourage you to be a member and to enter your animals. So, guys, I would highly encourage you. I don't care if this is your first year bow hunting or if you're an old veteran. You belong to Pope and Young because we're the ones on a day-to-day basis that are standing and fighting for your rights as a bow hunter. So join Pope and Young today. If you've bought a bear bow, all you've got to do is go online and register that bow, and Bear Archery is going to pay for your membership to Pope and Young. So if you've got that brand-new Persist, if you've got the brand-new Whitetail Max, if you've got uh, any of the new Alaskan XTs, whatever you're shooting, register that bow online, and Bear is going to pay for your first-year membership to Pope and Young. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope that uh, it is the peak of the rut. That, and we're only about a week away from that sweet week for me, November 11th through the 17th, 18th. So get out there and hunt, guys. Enjoy the rut. As always, I would love to share in your success. So shoot me over an email with your pictures. I'd love to see those. But guys, thank you for listening. Y'all have a fantastic week. 